So I got to start by sharing, I guess it's not a confession, it's just an awareness that I've come to. I shared it with the 930 service. Keep in mind, they're typically a little younger than this service. I shared with them that I have come to the realization that I am not getting old. I have gotten old. Um, my back is killing me. And in a little bit, I'll explain why there is a reason. But that's not the real proof that I've gotten old. The real proof that I've gotten old is that I got back from Honduras on Thursday. On Friday, I went to pick up a new pair of glasses. And these glasses, the eye doctor was, you know, tricky. Um, she called them digital lenses. It's like, yeah, sounds cool. It's fine. No problem. What I've come to find out is, I don't know if you've heard of them. One half of the lens, you can see far. The other half of the lens, you can see close. It's this really weird thing, Isaac, like I was at the doctor and they were, they, you know, they'll fit them, they'll put them on you and you make sure you can see. So these are like your grandparents probably have these. Um, They used to have a line on them. I'd wear my grandparents when I had them. You know what I'm talking about. So I put them on and everything seemed fine until I got up and I went like, like, (laughs) it's like they're broke. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm old, um, I'm there, I'm wearing bifocals. Um, so I tell you that to say a couple reasons. If, if I'm doing this while I'm preaching, <laughs> I'm okay, it's just the back going out. If I stumble like this, it's okay, just don't know where the floor is, <laughs> um, but we will get through it. <laughs> um, so I do wanna start today, uh, seriously though, I do wanna start today by thanking you uh, for your prayers, for your support. There were 19 of us that got to travel to Western Honduras last week. Uh, we all made it back. This is a picture from outside where I was staying. It was a beautiful country. Um, these trips, they give us the opportunity to not only serve, but to really learn and to reflect on what faith and life is like in a context that's literally very foreign to us. Craig, he just got back from his own trip to Kenya. I love the outfit. Very nice. Did you learn a lot? Did you learn a lot? No, did you learn a lot? Well, yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah, this is my seventh trip to Western Honduras um, and it took me seven trips to finally realize why mission trips, they, honestly for me, they feel more like vacations or retreats. It took me seven trips to realize why. So as we're flying in and you see the countryside, it took me seven trips to realize why I feel strangely at home in that foreign land. And I think the reason is because here we live with such certainty Like we've come to expect there's a certain order to things. There's a process to almost every part of life. But when I'm in Honduras, I'm reminded certain things can quickly become uncertain. (laughs) Things become relative really fast, especially time. Like when my friend, our host Ricardo, when he says things like, the trip to the next village will only take 30 minutes. That's code for 45 minutes to an hour, right? (laughs) Or when he tells the crew, we need to load up 20 food bags to go give to the villagers. What he means is you're gonna need 30 or 40 food bags to go give to the villagers. There's just a certain uncertainty to it all. And it breaks up my normal pattern of life. My expectations for the day are always subverted. It's terrifying. I often find myself a little frustrated, but at the end of it, when I submit to it, it refreshes my soul. And I learn a lot. 
not only about others, about God, but about who I am. So I'm gonna share more about this in just a little bit, but again, thank you for your prayers, for your support. I'm really grateful that our church is able to send uh, missionaries off to do this work. Um, So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, uh, grateful um, for the work that you call us to do in Kenya, in Honduras, in Peru, uh, here in Kingwood, the second we walk out these doors today. So we pray this morning that as the scriptures read, as the gospels proclaimed, that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we could receive what you have for us, that we would use our hands and our feet, that you would use our hands and our feet, that every part of who we are as we go about life in this world to serve you, to serve your kingdom, and to spread the good news of how much you love us. So be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So last week, Sabrina kicked off our summer series. Uh, We're calling it, What's the Point of Prayer? Uh, We're looking at conversations throughout scripture between God and his people as the story of God's salvation plays out. Uh, Today, we're gonna be in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter three, if you wanna begin to turn there in your Bibles. Um, Last week, we saw that, that prayer can give us great confidence that God will keep his promises even when it seems like he's taken his sweet time to do it even if it seems like maybe he's even forgotten. (laughs) Prayer, these conversations with God remind us that God is always there even when it seems like he's really far away. Today, what we're gonna see is that in our conversations with God, that we are allowed to wrestle with all of this, to struggle with God, to object to God, even as God chooses and uses us to accomplish his good and perfect will. In Exodus three and four, Uh, we get this conversation, the story of a conversation between God and a man named Moses. And Moses is a man who wrestles. He objects. And he's not objecting to God's purposes for Israel. He's objecting to God's purposes for him. (laughs) He's objecting to God's determination to use Moses to bring salvation to his people. So let's read Exodus 3. I'm just gonna read verses one through 12. If you wanna go home later today, you can read all the way through chapter four, verse 17 to get this entire conversation. But this morning, let's just see how Moses' conversation with God might impact how we approach God today. So Exodus chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then it continues in verse nine. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, 
I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this is the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's how one commentator paints the picture. He wants to remind us that this was just an ordinary work day for Moses. So Moses was a shepherd, always on the move with his flock. The Sinai Desert, it's not like the Sahara Desert. It's honestly more like West Texas. Uh, It's like an arid wilderness. So a shepherd needs to know where it has rained, where the winter rain has collected and maybe some new grass has started to grow. So Moses has traveled some way through the wilderness to find it. And as he's doing it, he sees something strange. Now this bush would have been something like a spiky acacia tree, most likely. And the text tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. But those flames didn't destroy the bush. Now here's the deal. Honestly, probably not the first time Moses saw a bush on fire in the arid wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. That was most likely a common occurrence. Why did this one stand out? And what made Moses stop and wait and watch? And this is a really important thing to stop and consider. Because what the text actually tells us, it says this clearly. It was Moses's curiosity that led to his call. It was only when Moses saw that God, I mean, only when God saw that Moses' curiosity led him to investigate that tree further. It was only when God saw that Moses allowed himself to be drawn onto holy ground. That's when the conversation began. That's the moment that Moses realized, that's when we realize as the readers, it's no messenger in that flame, it's God himself. And God calls out to Moses. And Moses' first response is, here I am. So God introduces himself as the God of Moses' ancestors, as the God of Moses' own father. God explains not only was he aware of the suffering of Israel, but deeply moved by it. And now ready to act and bring salvation to his people, and he's going to use Moses to do it. Now listen, there's a lot to say about Moses' backstory. You can read it in chapter 2. But you have got to remember, at this point in Moses' life, what is his job? He's a meager shepherd. He's not a priest like his father-in-law. He's not a prophet. He's a shepherd. In fact, he doesn't even own the sheep. (laughs) He's kind of a nobody. And now God revealed his plans for Moses... And that's when the fear and the doubt began to set in. The same guy who said, here I am, once he heard what God had in store, here I am quickly turned into, who am I? (laughs) Right, who am I that you would use me? Listen, anyone in here ever feel that way? Like, who am I that God would use me to go make a difference in the world or go be a part of transforming someone's life? pretty common response to God's call. And honestly, it's not a bad thing that that's our pretty common response to God's call. I think it's actually a good thing. 
Because to ask the question, who am I? It shows we got a bit of humility. And we're aware of the magnificent glory of God. Like so many people in our culture, they're seeking power and authority. Like people seek to be elected because they believe that not only are they ready to lead, some of them believe that we, the little people, are gonna be lost without them. And the truth is that being governed by people who want to exercise power, y'all, that should worry us a little bit. Because the great leaders in scripture and most of the great leaders throughout history, they had to be dragged into the position. (laughs) They didn't want it. You find me another leader throughout history, like George Washington, who after two terms says, I'm done. Because this power will corrupt. The real leaders throughout history didn't want it. It was put upon them, and Moses is no different. He didn't run for election, he tried to run from it. It depends on how you break the conversation up, but it seems as if there are eight different objections that Moses makes to God. Between chapter three and chapter four, what we read today was the first of eight objections. God spoke, Moses objected eight times. But the reason I wanted to focus on this first conversation is in this wrestling, in what we read this morning, this is actually where we learn why God chose Moses to lead in the first place. It actually had nothing to do with his story in chapter two. It was all about what happened at that bush. Because at this time in his life, Moses was a man who lacked personal ambition, but had a great capacity for leadership. Think about that. Moses was a man who got over his personal ambition, but he had a great capacity for leadership. What if more leaders lacked personal ambition and actually had a great capacity for leadership? In this conversation with God, Moses reveals something very important about himself, that even though he's just a shepherd, that he can be bold And he can persevere even when he comes face to face with a power that's greater than his own. He goes one-on-one with God. He objects to the God of the universe. And God goes on to answer every single one of Moses' objections. God shows him how even in Moses' weakness, God's power through him will provide powerful signs and wonders that God is not only with him, but that God really is fighting for his people. But I wanna focus on one verse in particular because I think this is really weird. It's very interesting. It's at the start of the conversation. It's honestly shocking, but I think it actually is really helpful for us today. It's from verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now listen to what God says. And God said, I will be with you. Okay, there's good news, right? And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Okay, did you hear that? What kind of sign is that? Like we think of signs as evidence, right? Something that we can look to, to guide us, to give us confidence that we're actually going in the right direction. Like what if I told, what if you asked for directions to my house and all I said was, um, you'll know you're there when you get there. That's exactly what God said to Moses. 
Now, of course, as the story goes on, we see that God provides signs and wonders throughout. It's clear to Moses and to the people that God is with them the entire time, but God doesn't lead with that. He leads with, you'll know I sent you when the journey's over. You'll know it was me when the journey's over and you're back here worshiping on this mountain. Would that have been enough for you? Like, I don't know if it would have been enough for me. Many of you know Emily Omanya. She works on staff. If you don't know her, I'm confident you've talked to her at least once. Um, Emily leads our hospitality team. She's made it her personal mission to ensure that no one gets in or out of this place without being noticed and made to feel welcome and at home. Um, Emily was a part of our team that went to Honduras this past week. And on the plane ride home, I asked her and a couple other people to just read Exodus 3 and 4 and then just share their thoughts with me. Just send me, send me what they noticed. So I want to read you um, some of what she shared with me. She said, I find it interesting that God tells Moses that he won't be assured this great task is truly from God until the danger is over. With us having the benefit of knowing all that happens from beginning to the end of the story, we are talking like a Grand Canyon-sized journey of faith and obedience. We are not guaranteed signs of assurance throughout our trials. That's why we need faith. She says, in the boat, Jesus says, we're going to the other side. And typically, that's all the information you get, which should be enough. But of course, for us, it's not enough. And then she said this. She said, this rang true throughout much of our trip this week in Honduras. She said, we were told, today we're going to, and then you fill in the blank with whatever the plan was for the day. But how did we immediately respond? Question after question to make sure we had the clearest picture possible of the road that lied ahead of us that day. And the more clearer that picture began, the less we needed to trust. And then when things started to change, which they always do, that's when we start to get a little frustrated. And she writes this, she said, if we had just trusted that we were gonna get to the other side, maybe we would have enjoyed the journey along the way a little more. I thought that was really wise. That actually played out for me in a really specific way on this trip. Um, one of our tasks in Honduras was uh, to pack these bags with food and these food bags, they would sustain a family for a week to two weeks depending on the size of the family. Uh, the food bags cost about 20 bucks each and we assembled them piece by piece and then we would carry them with us to pass out to families um, as we replaced the roofs on homes or as we led a VBS or as we went to pop-up clinics, we would hand these food bags out to families. Uh, we left on Thursday. On Wednesday morning, we still had about 80 bags left to hand out. So our host, my friend Ricardo, um, he broke us up into two teams. Uh, the first team went with Mark Smith and they visited a clinic that Ricardo's foundation had set up. And they gave these bags of food to expecting and new mothers who had traveled from all around Western Honduras to deliver their babies. And then after that, they went to the local landfill and they gave those food bags to families who were collecting items either for dinner or to sell so that they could provide for their families. And then for the rest of the team, Ricardo gave us the opportunity to take just a quick five minute hike across the bridge and through the woods to the center for men who were in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Um, so about 10 of us loaded up 20 bags of food, which quickly became how many bags of food? About 30 or 40, that's right. 
And we put him in the back of the truck and we drove uh, to this bridge. Uh, so remember what I told you earlier, right? Certain things quickly become uncertain in Honduras. So we get to this bridge. As we pull up to the bridge, I notice there's a guide walking across to meet us. All right, that's your first clue. Is not gonna be a five minute hike through the woods. <laughs> if we needed a guide, it wasn't gonna be a simple journey. And it wasn't. As we started unloading the bags, uh, Ricardo discussed this little hike with the guide and he came back to me. And I always know things are changing when Ricardo says, uh, Shad. <laughs> he said, it'll be about a 25 minute hike up, up, <laughs> and along the side of the mountain. It's a little further than I thought. Okay, good. <laughs> sure, Ricardo, sounds great. That's when I took my first slow, steady, deep, centering breath, something my therapist taught me to deal with anxiety. <laughs> Relax, Chad, we're here to serve. We've come all this way. Trust your friend, see it through. Look, the problem wasn't that it was gonna be a 25 minute hike up and along the side of the mountain. That's not what I was worried about. The problem was that we were making that hike while each of us carried two bags of food. Now I texted some of the members of the team last night and asked how much they thought each of those bags weighed and I'm just giving you the average of their answers. Actually, each of them said about 25 pounds each. So carrying one in each arm. That's 50 pounds of food in plastic bags. This is the bridge that we crossed um, I think we have a picture of it. Uh, one of the reasons we needed a guide was because there was a really sketchy bridge we had to cross. That's not the sketchy bridge. Uh, there's a video of Hag, uh, Sabrina's husband, coming across when we were finished. You see how he liked to shake the bridge. Like I was honestly terrified right then and that's where the trip started. <laughs> Like the journey had barely started and my nerves were already on the rise and my sense of trust in my friend was in a free fall. Like, I worry. I worry a lot. I worry more than I should. One thing I love about going on these trips with my friend Mark Smith is that Mark Smith doesn't worry about anything. Like, to be honest with you, Mark Smith, he doesn't worry enough. You know what I mean? Like, like I really think that if, that if he was at the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus would have said, don't worry about what you eat or what you wear. But Mark, you probably should worry about some things. Like, <laughs> convinced of that. But, but Mark, on these trips, he, he balances me out, right? He centers me. He helps me remember it's all good. The problem is Mark was at the clinic. He wasn't with me. I'm really freaking out, to be honest with you. But we did it. We start the hike. And as we start the hike really quickly, the heat led to sweat, which led to slippery 25 pound bags of food in our arms or on our shoulders or wherever and however we could position them just to keep us moving up the mountain. And then the bags began to break. So we had to circle back around to pick up the items that had fallen out. A couple of us slipped and started to slide down the mountain a bit and had to crawl our way back up. My own kid was one of them. Didn't tell his mom about that till we got home. <laughs> but we made it. And we arrived at a small farm, radishes and corn mostly. Uh, there was a straw hut. There was an outdoor pavilion covered in sheet metal to protect from the rain. 
And then there was a makeshift dormitory for men who have committed themselves so that they can find hope and healing and recovery from their addiction and find hope and healing in Jesus. Uh, That facility was started by a man named Dago. Um, Dago had his life radically altered after serving time in prison here in the States uh, for drug possession and trafficking. It was in prison that he met Jesus and he heard a call that radically transformed his life and ends up transforming the lives of others. Uh, when he was released from prison, he was deported back to Honduras and he had nothing, like, like literally nothing, no money, no land, no family. He arrived back in his country with nothing except for Jesus, a purpose, a purpose and a mission. A ministry did give him a small piece of land when they heard what he wanted to do. He took the elements to build just a small house that maybe one or two other men could come and he could help them kick their addictions and find Jesus. Like he thought if he could just help one or two others find what he had found in Christ, that everything would be worth it. And today he hosts as many as 120 men at a time with no budget, no money, no reliable source of income. So they were down to their last batch of corn and they were cooking the corn, which would have taken another day to make tortillas, which they were hoping would last them in another day. That's all they had until 10 gringos and a couple Honduran guides show up with about 500 pounds of food, literally out of nowhere. Now he didn't know we were coming, but he was not surprised. Because he said, this is exactly how God provides for his people. It's how God always provides for him and these men. And he is reminded that God is with him and God is faithful to him only when he has nothing left because that's when God steps in. And that's when every time he is reminded and assured that his mission is truly from God and he's on the right path. We stayed there for about 30 minutes. I'll share more with y'all later about it. I'm honestly still processing what we heard and what we learned. But do you realize how close I came to shutting down that trip altogether? Like how close I came to saying, no, we're not gonna do it. How close I came to never getting to meet Dago or hearing his story. How close I came as the leader of our team to preventing the rest of our team from meeting Dago and hearing his story. All because I was dealing with my frustration and the uncertainty of this five minute hike that turned into what I was certain would be an impossible journey. All because I had objections. All because I was uncertain. Honestly, because I was afraid of the journey. Because I didn't think it would be worth it. Across that first bridge, across the sketchy bridge especially, halfway through, when I thought we had already been hiking for 30 minutes and they said we have 10 minutes left, y'all, I didn't think it'd be worth it the entire time until I got there and realized how wrong I was. Spending time with the men, wasn't even tired anymore. Took deep cleansing breaths. We worshiped Jesus together. Do you realize how close we came to missing all of that? Now look, there's a lot I don't know about prayer. But what Moses' story teaches me is that the right place to start is to slow down, to pay attention, and to have a little faith. To notice ordinary things 
and just wait with expectation because God takes ordinary things and does extraordinary things with them. Y'all listen, what if God is communicating with us all the time? What if God is actually communicating with us all the time? We just can't hear him because we're not listening. We can't see what he's doing because we're not paying attention. We're not looking. Like what if God is ready to use us, but we are just so busy with our plans that we're too busy to participate in his? Moses might have saved himself a lot of frustration if he had just ignored that bush. Read the rest of Exodus and you'll know exactly what I mean. (laughs) He could have easily seen that bush, thought to himself, "Eh, that's weird, (laughs) and just kept on going about his day. He would have been doing his work, but it would have cost him a lifetime partnership with God. Instead, Moses allowed his curiosity to guide him. He slowed down. He looked. He listened. God spoke. Moses objected. He wrestled. God allowed it. God engaged with Moses. He wrestled right back. But at the end of the day, Moses trusted God. He was able to trust and obey. Listen, if God is calling you to something, which I promise you he is, and I don't care on what end of the monovision or bifocal lenses you're on. (laughs) I don't care how long you've been retired. I don't care how much time you think you have left. God is calling you to something. And he's doing it because he sees something in you that you just don't see right now. He sees the you that he created you to be. He knows your gifts and strengths and weaknesses. He knows them better than you do. But the beautiful thing about God, what these conversations reveal, is God knows we can't see the big picture. We don't know what he knows. So in his mercy and his grace, he invites us to wrestle so that he can show us. He invites us to walk so we can see where he's leading. Y'all, we, may have, we would have saved ourselves some cuts and bruises and tired lungs. I would have saved myself a very stern look from my wife when I told her my son fell down the side of a mountain. <laughs> we would have saved ourselves a lot of trouble if we had just said no to that journey on the other side of the bridge. Oh my gosh, it would have cost us so much to say no. Like what if we could just learn to slow down a little bit Like let certain things become a little less certain and not get so frustrated when it happens? What if we could become more open to opportunities that might sound undesirable or even impossible in the moment? Just take a deep breath in and remember, discomfort always passes. And this uncomfortable journey we're gonna go on, it just might be worth the extra effort. There's a lot that I don't know about prayer. But what I do know from these stories throughout scripture is that God desires an engaged conversation with us. Y'all, he wants the back and forth. Moses' story shows us that God can handle any objection that we throw his way. The only thing we can do wrong is walking away from the conversation. Eventually, the question we'll have to ask and answer 
is will we go through life paralyzed by fear and uncertainty and end up going nowhere? Or will we trust him and take the next step on this journey even if we aren't certain where we're going or how we'll get there? Listen, four years ago, I came to this church and we got a new staff, new leadership, and we knew exactly what we needed to do for the first couple years, and we've done that. We've established purpose and mission and values. You guys know all the language. We talk about it all the time. We know where we're going in the next 25 years. We have an idea of what this church will look like 30 years from now. What we don't know yet is where we're gonna be five years from now. We don't know what God has in store for us in the next five years. As a session, as a staff, we've spent nine months discerning it. We're starting to get a clearer picture, but we don't really know. That can be terrifying. But rooted in the work that God has already done in this church, the people that he's made us to be, what I know is we're ready. What I'm afraid of is that we'll be paralyzed by fear and uncertainty and go nowhere. Do we trust him? And will we take an uncomfortable step, trusting that he's gonna teach us, he's gonna guide us, and on the other end of it, we'll see a church that we couldn't have even imagined or dreamed of. Amen? Let's pray. Father, grateful that we don't have to go to Honduras or Kenya or anywhere else to slow down, to look around at ordinary things and watch you do extraordinary things with them. So give us vision, give us wisdom, give us patience, give us peace, give us trusting and obedient hearts that we would follow you wherever it is you lead. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord and all God's people said.